This is the 966 episode 40. Mr. Richard Wilson, congratulations. How are you doing, sir? Wonderful. Mr. Lucian Ziegler, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing just fine. Um, really awesome show today. We'll be talking about Erdogan's visit to Saudi Arabia, which is just kicking off now. The new uh, President Biden's new pick to be ambassador to Saudi Arabia. We also have coming up shortly a terrific discussion with Fatima Alhamlan, Dr. Fatima Alhamlan, who is just a really, it's a really wonderful conversation. Make sure you stay tuned for that. She is just an absolutely brilliant person and um, is a terrific interview. So we're excited to share that with you as well. Um, before we get going, please remember to subscribe, give us a review. It doesn't cost you anything, helps us out a lot. You can do that on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I think, Richard, our podcasts are reaching about 20 different podcast platforms now. So we're really expanding, and it's great to see the followership grow. It so is. thank you to all of you guys. Yep. The, the 966 is everywhere. And by the way, if you haven't subscribed, the subscription numbers are booming. Do not be left behind. Do not do not be left behind. <laughs> um, Richard, let's get going. What's your one big thing this week? Okay, you mentioned Erdogan, President Erdogan. Starting today, uh, Turkish President Recep Erdogan will be in Riyadh for a two-day visit to include meetings with King Salman and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Interestingly enough, and we, we you know, aggregate and curate the news every day, you would barely know it from the Saudi press. Saudi Gazette had a very short article about two days, but not a peep from Arab News or SPA. Um, coverage in other, other areas. Conversely, according to Arab Weekly, in Turkey, quote, the trip has been publicized many times by the Turkish president and his entourage. For months, Erdogan has been announcing that he was bound for Riyadh on one date and then postponing it to another. The visit was thus moved from February, then to March, and finally to April, close quote. So he's, he's there today. Um, the Turkish enthusiasm is understandable. I mean, President Erdogan is on a, on a reconciliation tour that thus far has included stops in the UAE and Egypt. Uh, at home, he's in dire straits. He faces economic turmoil, soaring inflation, a currency crisis, uh, depressed foreign investment. Uh, and with this trip to Saudi, uh, in particular, President Erdogan will seek the lifting of the unofficial trade boycott that reduced Turkish exports to Saudi Arabia from $2.5 billion in 2020 to $250 million in 2021. Uh, also in the past, Turkey has been a preferred vacation destination for Saudis. Erdogan would like that revenue back as well. Uh, for Saudi Arabia, the ambivalence to this visit is understandable. Uh, yes, Saudi Arabia and Turkey are the largest economies in the Middle East. Yes, they are both members of the G20 and regional political heavyweights. Yes, Saudi Arabia is seeking to de-escalate tensions across the region. However, this rift is deep and it's personal. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been leery of Turkey's intentions since the Arab Spring revolts in 2011 and the subsequent decade in which Ankara <clears throat> supported Islamic groups throughout the region. Um, add to that uh, Turkey's decision in 2018 to try in absentia the perpetrators of the Jamal <clears throat> Khashoggi murder and Erdogan's efforts to politicize the tragedy and aggressively question the role of MBS. Uh, this is what I mean by personal. It got very personal. Erdogan was a cheerleader of this group and, and it was deeply resented in, in Saudi Arabia. 
In advance of this trip, a Turkish court halted the trial in absentia, and Turkey ended its court action, transferring the case to Saudi Arabia. Uh, must have been a prerequisite for any kind of visit uh, for Erdogan in Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> for some time now, Erdogan has been talking up rapprochement with the Gulf in Egypt. Saudi Arabia is next. However, according to AFP, a Turkish official said no formal announcements are expected and the trip will be closed to the press. Uh, Lucian, this is a worthwhile beginning with Saudi Arabia. Um, communication and civility are better than contention, but trust remains very far away. What is the motivation? So, you know, we had the Khashoggi uh, murder and there was a you know, serious diplomatic crisis between Saudi Arabia and that. That was four years ago. Um, is the motivation here, is it mostly economic or is it political? I mean, are, is it just sort of the sands of time moving? Um, Turkey's economy has been battered by inflation, 60 percent. Um, is there is there a reason? Is that what's driving Erdogan's visit, do you think? They've had sort of a yes. The, uh, the financial, the economic is a big deal, and uh, and Erdogan's in trouble at home. The economy's he's got some weird economic ideas, uh, especially when it comes to inflation. Inflation is close to sixty percent in Turkey. Um, he got a commitment of ten billion dollars, uh, uh, investment vehicle, investment fund from the UAE, and also a, they did a four point nine million currency swap with UAE in January, which helped stabilize the lira. Um, but on top of that, uh, Turkey's been a strange trip uh, over the last decade in terms of its foreign policy in the region. It's very provocative, very um, contrarian, uh, and at almost every step of the way, put it at, at loggerheads on opposite sides with Gulf uh, monarchies. Um, Qatar aside, because Turkey, you know, came to Qatar's aid during the, the spat, the dispute with Saudi Arabia. Uh, but there, again, on the other side was Saudi. Uh, so I think they're trying to, and it hasn't gained them anything. Uh, they really just uh, alienated people. And and now, you know, the economic situation combined with sort of being in, in political uh, no man's land and sort of it just, it, it hasn't worked. So I think they're just trying to, to rebuild relationships with key countries in the region. Egypt's a little frosty, but I think that's working on that. Saudi Arabia will be frosty, but, you know, Saudi Arabia is trying to de-escalate across the board. So they'll be, you know, they, 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 has a, they, haven't, they haven't even made an official announcement, I think, of the visit, but they'll welcome him and he'll have meetings and they'll, they'll, good things will be said and, and it's a start. Uh, but yeah, Erdogan, Erdogan is definitely at a disadvantage here in terms of leverage. It's interesting too the sort of war in Ukraine and how the ripples from that have affected and sort of vibrated all across the world. Turkey gets much of its gas from Russia. Uh, so just the disruption to the energy market alone has caused a shift in priorities for almost every country in the world, um, including Saudi Arabia. And so it's sort of interesting, you know, Richard, um, a mutual friend of ours, I won't name him here, but he always says you can tell how good the relations are between Saudi Arabia and any other country when you see who receives the visiting leader at the airport when they arrive. Um, that will be an interesting thing to see. I don't know if it's actually already happened, but, um, you know, if it's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman going out to the airport receiving you, you know, you're in good standing. And if it's not him, you may not be. That will be one thing to look for from this meeting. Also, really fascinating point about the Arab coverage of this visit, that there is basically none in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Um, 
very yeah. telling as well and, and very interesting. I think the Saudis will come through with the niceties, and I wouldn't be surprised if MBS uh, or even King Salman is there because this is this is a head of state, and this is a head of state of a very large, important country in the region. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, the, the Saudis are always conscious of the niceties. You know, what commitments they make, I think, will be limited. I, I really think this is uh, uh, a, a makeup visit, and hello, and sorry about you know. Uh, you know, it's it's an opportunity to start over. Hopefully, I don't expect anything big to come out. I'd be surprised if there are big investments, you know, announced. Um, but even as I said, just simply getting the unofficial boycott removed mm-hmm. would be a boon to the Turkish economy. It's like we were talking about last week. You know, there's no, there are no alliances. There are just the alignment of interests and whether they align or not. And just like friends over time that have had a falling out, there's a reason for them to be friends again. You start to bury the hatchet a little bit. Um, you know, the Khashoggi thing was four years ago. So, um, you know, enough other stuff has happened since then. And it's time that these two economic powerhouses start to work together again. I mean, obviously, Turkey's in NATO. So there's that. Um very interesting going on here. Definitely. What about you? You have a good one. Big I thing. do. I, <laughs> I do have a good one. And I hope this doesn't go on too long. Um, so, you know, good thing that I can cut anything out. So maybe I'll just ramble here. Um, my one big thing this week, Michael Ratney is President Biden's pick to be the new U.S. ambassador to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Ratney, a 61-year-old career veteran diplomat, currently serving as the acting deputy director of the State Department's Foreign Service Institute. Uh, He was recently charged charge affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, um, previously served as a deputy chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Qatar. Um, What do we know about him? He's got a B.S. in mass communication from Baston University and an M.A. in international affairs from GW. The post has been vacant, Richard, since John Abizade left in 20, January 2021. He was uh, President Trump's appointee. Historically, but not always, U.S. ambassadors to Saudi Arabia have been political appointees with deep military ties like General Abizade. Ratney is the first Foreign Service officer to be in line for the post since Richard, your previous boss and friend, Chaz Freeman in 1989. Um, Ratney is not in the military or security space, but he was on the faculty of the National Defense University. So I wonder if uh, David DeRoche knows him very well. Um, there's a piece out right now, Richard, in the rarely even keeled Business Insider on the appointment <laughs> that is attempting, it would seem, to sort of stoke the much ballyhooed rocky state of U.S.-Saudi relations these days, featuring a quote from a Trump appointee, David Schenker, saying that the decision may be insulting to Saudis. That may be, that sounds pretty ridiculous to me. I doubt it. It is frankly, fairly irresponsible for Business Insider to write the headline this way. As I mentioned, the last Foreign Service officer to be in the line for the post was Chaz Freeman. And, um, you know, there's no such thing as an ambassador appointment that is meant as an insult. Um, This isn't the appointment of a prominent human rights activist or a prominent critic of Saudi Arabia. This person, Michael Ratner, is a diplomat's diplomat, a careerist in this space, uh, fluent in Arabic and French. He's not the usual appointment, but these are unusual times. Um, and I mentioned Chaz Freeman, you know, as the last uh, sort of diplomat to get the to get the post. Um, Richard, you know who literally wrote the definition on the word diplomacy for the Encyclopedia Brit- Britannica? Chaz Freeman did, right? Um, which is crazy. <laughs> 
Diplomacy, he wrote, is, quote, the established method of influencing the decisions and behavior of foreign governments and peoples through dialogue, negotiation, and other measures short of war or violence. So just to sort of wrap this up, I think it's way too early to say that this is a poor decision by President Biden or that uh, Ratner is set to fail. Um, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are longtime allies. This is a fact. The drama du jour puts strain on that fact, but it does not fundamentally change it. Uh, watch the 966 long enough and you'll realize that the roots of US-Saudi, the U.S.-Saudi relationship run way too deep in many directions. And much of that drama, I believe, and I think you, you believe as well, Richard, too, but I'll let you jump in here, can be fixed with communication, the type of work that an ambassador, and not just an ambassador, but his team of colleagues and connections on the ground can achieve. So uh, it won't be an easy confirmation hearing um, for Mr. Ratner in the Senate, but if he is approved, I think this is a good thing. And I think this helps the U.S.-Saudi relationship. This has always been, first of all, I want to I want to take a minute to acknowledge Ambassador Chaz Freeman, mm. who I got to work with when I was executive director of the Middle East Policy Council for close to eight years. And what a treat. Holy mackerel. This guy, uh, as bright as anybody I know, as well-rounded, I mean, a, a, an enormously capable diplomat, but also extremely effective and astute businessman. Uh, and a bon vivant. He loved life. I mean, he, he loves life. He's, he's, still, he's still doing great and speaking and, and adding his knowledge to the, the, the conversation um, and is a, is a really esteemed, it should be an esteemed voice in terms of diplomacy and, and policy across the board. An interesting point, when he was ambassador, this was during the first Gulf War, all the U.S. troops came in under the auspices of the embassy. So he holds the record for having the largest embassy ever. It's something like 450,000 embassy members of American troops. So, and I don't know if that number is right, but it's, it's, you know, I think it may be, it may be short. I think there may be more, uh, but talk about a, talk about a um, uh, really uh, special individual. Um, the Saudis, absolutely. And by, it's not specific to the Saudis. Uh, they always like friends of the president. Uh, somehow they think, you know, they, they think there's, it gives them more access. It gives them a better voice. They have the ear of the president. And, and I, I will say, you know, the political appointees that have come uh, subsequent to Ambassador Freeman, they've been capable. I mean, you know, sometimes you get political appointees that are, are, are hacks and just really not appropriate for the job. That has not been the case with Saudi Arabia. I think um, I think that David Schenker comments in the in the Business Insider were premature and and you know you know I'm not sure that it's accurate. I think what the Saudis probably are insulted by is if you do the math that since since January 2017, January 2017 to now, which is just over 60 months. The U.S. has had an ambassador in Riyadh for about 18 months. That's John Abizade, capable, capable uh, dip diplomat. That's about 30% of the time. That's just neglect. Yeah, and, that's such and, a great point. And if you and if you look at it from the flip side, um, just going back to 83, roughly, you know, roughly concurrent with Ambassador Freeman, maybe a little early with Bandar bin Sultan, you know, that series of, of ambassadors, Bandar bin Sultan, Turkey bin Faisal, who, by the way, we did a great uh, segment on, on his piece in the Arab News, Adel al-Jubair, 
Abdullah bin Faisal bin Turkey al Saud, uh, Khalid bin Salman al Saud, Rami Rima bin Bandar al Saud. So that's you know uh, a forty-year stretch. Never more than three months between appointees. So that seat was never vacant for more than three months. Uh, and look at the people they're sending. You know this Khalid bin Salman, you know son of the king, Rima bin Bandar. Uh, you know, a, a, a really well-known royal who's, who's you know, uh, daughter of a previous ambassador, Bandar bin Sultan, who was himself, you know, you know, a son of one of the Sudari Seven. You know, and Turkey, bin Fais, Turkey al-Faisal, which we've talked about. He's an, he's an extraordinary individual. Adil al-Jaber, who is now, now, you know, Minister of State for Foreign Affairs in Saudi, for Saudi Arabia. So I, I think you, you put it nicely, uh, the drama du jour, um, you know, everyone's looking for a reason to say how bad things are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, this is not to down, run down Martina Strong, who's a charge d'affaires in, in Saudi Arabia. And she'll tell you it's not it has nothing to do with her personally. Um, it has to do with what what kind of uh, what kind of attention you want to give to the relationship. So this is overdue. Mm-hmm. And I think he'll be I'm sure he'll be very capable um, I don't know if he'll get the cold shoulder, but he's, it'll be better than what we have in terms of the communication and, and a means of communication. I think we're both in the same sort of mindset about things, and that is to sort of look on the positive, see the upside. What are the possibilities here? You know, um, and, and actually the Business Insider has a quote also from Aaron David Miller, who says, quote, if anyone can navigate the mess that is U.S.-Saudi ties, it's Ratney. He'll at least provide an honest assessment of how or how not U.S.-Saudi interests and values align. What Biden does is another matter, he says. Um, you know, maybe the relationship has gone beyond and, and it's hard to say. I mean, it, who knows? But maybe it has sort of graduated a little bit as Vision 2030 matures, gone beyond just the oil for security paradigm that we've been talking about and 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 have been living under for so long and you know perhaps it isn't a bad thing that the ambassador to Saudi Arabia isn't a political appointee that is in the you know that has a long military history maybe it is helpful that he or she is an ambassador with deep diplomatic experience and you know maybe maybe this is a great appointment so it's just way too like you said it's way too early to say and you know he's a he's a very capable guy yeah, and, and it's not all been military guys. I mean, you have mm-hmm. White's Fowler, Bob Jordan, Ford Fraker, uh, all these guys did, uh, you know, uh, were not military guys, and they and they went over and represented the country well, and 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 enhanced the relationship as best they could. Um, I don't think we've talked a lot about how I feel. We feel like we need to update our approach to Saudi Arabia, and that much of what we're doing is reactionary and outdated. Um, I don't think uh, I, I, this is everyone uh, characterizes this as a crisis. And I think that's fair enough. I think it's more of a reckoning mm-hmm. and I, hopefully it's used as an opportunity to catch up and realign and reconfigure and recalibrate um, into a more healthy means of communication and more healthy um, set of expectations for each other. Uh, I know uh, on the U.S. side, they're scrambling to be responsive and find a way to 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 be sensitive and sense of the wrong term, but to to respond to the concerns of the Gulf states, not just Saudi Arabia. Uh, but 
uh, it may take some time and it's going to be some fumbling, but it's much easier done with an ambassador in on seat. And by the way, there's no ambassador, U.S. ambassador in UAE uh, as of January 2021. So we need to get one there, too. One thing that I, this article sort of makes clear, and I do definitely agree with you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, the Saudi, the post of Saudi ambassador to the United States is the most prominent, you know, foreign, um, foreign ministry post you can get other than foreign minister, in my opinion. I mean, it, you know, that may not be true, but it's definitely a very prominent position. Princess Rima bint Bandar is incredibly capable and doing a really, really great job. She's a wonderful spokesperson. Um, she is just like a, a very talented, great ambassador and is doing a, a really great job and a very difficult job. So, um, you know, the, to, to find her counterpart, you know, as it were, even though that's not really how it works, um, you know, is I guess that you could look into that and say, well, what's what's her equivalent here? You know, who's the biggest superstar that Biden could appoint? I mean, this is just theoretical, but um, who would Saudi Arabia want? Like if Saudi Arabia could choose the ambassador, I mean, it's not how it works again, but like, you know. Well, that's a good point because there is no equivalent um, to someone like Rima bin Bandar or mm -hmm. Khalid bin Sultan. I mean, unless, unless you know, Hunter Biden. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you, yeah, and I, that came to mind, and I and I immediately ran from it. But you, you jump into the breach. No, but there you go. That's why there is no equivalent. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, you know, there, there was, uh, there's been obviously a lot to do about the relationship that Mohammed bin Salman has with Jared Kushner during the Trump uh, presidency. And um, uh, you can argue one way or another with that's, uh, that's uh, the best way to run foreign diplomacy. Mm -hmm. um, and to be honest, and, and I'd say that not from the, only from the American side, I think it's also from the Saudi side. I think you, you get yourself in, into trouble Saudis have run into real issues with their close alignment with Trump and and the nature of U.S. domestic politics of basically conflating now Trump with the Saudis and, and attacking the Saudis as a, as a sort of a stalking horse for Trump, which happens all the time now and happened, certainly happened uh, during the election season. Uh, I just think in general, you, you know, a foreign country, if you're interested in, in a good relationship with the U.S., shouldn't pick sides. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Good stuff. Well, good luck to Mr. Ratney. Um, good luck. Yes. We, and welcome to Riyadh. I mean, he really needs to he'll, he'll be it's, it's long overdue. And, and, and I think he'll he'll have a lot to do. What a great post. I think it'd be fascinating if you're a serious foreign, foreign service officer. What a great post at a difficult time. You want to come in and make your mark. Let's get now, Richard, what do you think to our really awesome conversation coming up right now with uh, Fatima Ahamlan? She is wonderful. This is a great discussion. Um, just a very accomplished uh, Saudi woman uh, who has studied in the U.S. Um, just just really great. Just so impressive. And, you, you know, the enthusiasm, but the, the, the sort of just endless competence. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just so capable, uh, really just impressive woman. We're speaking now with Dr. Fatima Al-Hamlan from the King Faisal Specialist Hospital and Research Center, which was recently named as one of the top hospitals in the world by Newsweek. Dr. Al-Hamlan is an adjunct clinical scientist, Department of Pathology, uh, a graduate of Washington State University, University of Idaho, and also studied at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Business School. 
Thank you so much for joining us today on the 966. Thank you for having me. Fatima, what a treat. Thank you for coming to be with us. I want to, I want to, we were just discussing it. Uh, we came to you actually through our friend, Bill Connor, who was with his oratorial media and he was working with, uh, he is still working, I believe with the ministry of media and this skilled speaker program, which you were part of. How, how did you get selected for that? Well, I was selected because I'm uh, kind of active in the community and in the social media. I do have, uh, you know, during COVID, uh, I was the first um, uh, first-line responder and uh, or frontline responder, basically. So we were very active in the community. Our mission really was to help the community to um, uh, face the pandemic. Uh, you know, our mission as a scientist is to communicate science to the public. We got through uh, several obstacles during the pandemic, if you remember. Everything was new, and this is the first time the whole society faced with this pandemic. It was a lockdown. No one knows what's happening during that time. So as a scientist, uh, we stepped in and we tried to help and communicate the science and knowledge to the community. And uh, again, we, I do have uh, an organization that's uh, uh, very active in the community. Again, our, our mission is just uh, to help others and to educate others and that's how i got actually selected in the program well we're going to get to all that and i, I want to let's 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 start not quite at the beginning but let's talk about your academic path um and a lot of it was in was in the states it started back in the early you know 2004-2005 uh, very early on the front end of the then king abdullah scholarship program but it's a very curious one. And when we were talking about it, can you share with us where you started and then where you ended up? <laughs> well, I have a, a fun and twist uh, journey when it comes to my academic path. Actually, <laughs> I was not uh, joining uh, or I didn't join uh, King Abdullah Program Scholarship. I started before that. Right. And uh, I was not the scholarship recipient. I was dependent. So my husband was uh, a scholarship recipient. He was actually uh, uh, supported by his job, by employer, even it was not um, a King Abdullah uh, scholarship program. So going back, looking at the journey, basically, so I was living in Al Medina Munawar, which is a, uh, uh, the second holy uh, uh, city in Saudi. I don't know if you have been there. Oh no, we're. I, I don't think we're allowed. Um, but we oh, have not. Okay. We've not been there. Yeah. Yeah. We'd so we'd I love was... to go if they make an exception <laughs> for us. We'd love to go. <laughs> yeah, that that was. Um, so I started my bachelor's degree during uh, 1999, and um, after that, I was in Medina studying. Then I got engaged to Abdullah, who is my husband now. Uh, during that time, he got the scholarship from King Faisal Specialist Hospital. He was an employee there. So he got the scholarship. Then um, we were talking about moving to the States. So I told him I need to finish up my uh, bachelor's degree first, then I can move with him. So he left to the States. Unfortunately, September 11th happened at that time, uh, 2001. So I joined him basically after I graduated. It was like 2002, 2003. Uh, again, I was dependent. I was not the scholarship recipient. Uh, studying in the U.S., uh, you know the immigration status. It's not easy. 
as uh, my visa was F2, I'm not allowed to study full time and also I'm not allowed to work. Uh, so that was kind of the challenges I started to face when I got there. I had two, I had two options, either to go back to Saudi and apply as a F1 student, which was impossible because I don't have a scholarship. There was no scholarship at that time, if you remember. Uh, the other option was to stay in the States and apply to uh, convert my visa to F2, which is going to take at least six months. I have no option, so I, I, just to accept that option, so, uh, which is the second one. I started the paperwork, the, uh, converting my visa to F1 so I can study. Uh, the Saudi Commission, the Saudi um, uh, uh, Cultural Mission in Washington, actually they support the dependents uh, with the, uh, English as a second language, uh, part-time. Yeah, so during that time, they supported actually my studies. I, uh, I joined uh, the, it was Washington State University. So I joined the English and I started that journey uh, slowly. Uh, it was part-time. Then uh, my husband called one of his professors to accept me in her lab to volunteer. Uh, it was Dr. Nancy Magnuson, uh, amazing, amazing individual. She's immunologist uh, working on cancer. So I joined her lab as volunteer and actually it was the best experience ever, ever because this is the first time you are exposed to real research, to real labs, to uh, different uh, uh, studying environments that what I used to. Uh, it was an eye-opening experience. I got to know what research is, what they are doing. Uh, there is no a major called microbiology or virology. They were very specific and every professor would pick a gene or pick something in a pathway just to understand. You see the lab, it's like a beehive. Everyone is working on a project. You see the university, you see the campus. And if you know Pullman, Washington, uh, uh, the only thing in Washington State is the university. Basically, it's just the university. So it's a small town, international students, the vibe is amazing. It's just inviting, you know, you have to do something, you have to study. So it, 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 was, it was a great environment for me actually to uh, persist and to decide I would do it. Uh, it was not easy journey at all because getting the admission was not easy. Uh, getting a scholarship was not easy. Uh, it took me really uh, over a year and a half to get the master degree uh, to get the master admission. Uh, so I started to work, I started to get non-degree program just to be eligible to join the master degree. So luckily I got the scholarship, I got the admission, and I got pregnant with my first daughter. <laughs> All good things happened that once, <laughs> you know? <laughs> All at once. So it was worth the, the wait. So again, uh, I started my um, master's degree uh, in Washington State University. Uh, I zipped through it. It took me like one year and a half. You know, uh, for a woman coming from Saudi, having this opportunity, is it was uh, a life-transforming experience. It was a um, great advantage I had. I was uh, so thankful. I am still so thankful for the whole uh, uh, things that have happened during that time. It was not easy, but it's worth it. And during that trip, during that journey, 
all in my mind was is just to continue pursuing my graduate studies. I'm not coming back till I have it all done. Despite all the obstacles, uh, the hardship we've been through, I just decided I will continue. So I did through my master's degree. Before I defended my master, I applied for a PhD because I was not planning to come back because that's my chance that I will, I will finish it. So uh, I didn't defend my master's degree. I uh, got admission for PhD and uh, I got my scholarship upgraded. Uh, and that all happened at the same time. Then uh, I got my scholarship actually upgraded, which is very uh, big help to have the government support. The government support needs the support for the whole family, including the kids. So that's where I got my uh, PhD admission in triple major, actually. I got it in microbiology, molecular biology, and biochemistry in University of Idaho. And again, it's like seven miles away. So I, I stayed in Pullman, Washington. I was just commuting every day. Uh, so uh, again, the same scenario happened. I got my PhD admission. I got the scholarship upgraded. And I got pregnant with my second child. <laughs> So that's, that's the, another journey of PhD. Uh, when I started my PhD, um, uh, remember my husband was doing his PhD and he had to leave because he graduated. And uh, the moment of truth came, he has to come back to report to his work. For me, I, I told him, I'm, I'm, I'm not coming back. <laughs> I, I just... I just got this admission and uh, I have the scholarship. I have everything I need. This is uh, the great opportunity. I will not give it up. So I'm staying. Uh, you cannot do this. Two kids, you are alone. PhD studies is not easy. And um, that was like, I, I, I will do it. And um, again, I continue. He, he actually... Um, uh, very, very supportive. He applied for a postdoc position in Washington so he can stay with me two more years. And that, uh, again, was very helpful. Uh, but again, after two years, he had to report back to his work. And I had to, yes. Oh, it's just, uh, it's, this, this, this scholarship program is just amazing. All the way from from, you know, that, that did include dependents. And as you said, you weren't in it first and you had to apply, but uh, just to hear, hear, here you are, uh, you know, a, 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 Saudi, young, a Saudi doctor who studied in the States, for, but, and is really excited about Pullman, Washington, <laughs> you know, you Absolutely. love, you know, you know, and, and you don't have that experience unless it's, you, you know, you get the opportunity to have that experience. And uh, so many young Saudis, you know, that were that came to the states underneath the scholarship, or, or or opted into the scholarship, or accepted into the scholarship, like you were, uh, just had life changing experiences. And like you say, your whole exposure to how research is done, and and uh, you know, obviously getting your degrees, and and uh, and I think probably very positive perceptions of the United States um, is invaluable. It's just, it's just something that you can't, I liken it a little bit in the U S to the GI bill, uh, you know, after world war two in the U S and it, it enabled many, many, many soldiers to go to college and it transformed, uh, economically, it was a tremendous boon to the U S economy because you had all these educated, skilled people that, you know, that were now available for the economy. 
Uh, and so many of you young Saudis that were part of this, this scholarship program are now back doing exactly what you're doing back in Saudi Arabia. Um, so let's finish this journey. You've done now after you were, you, you were, you know, you, you were out West Idaho and Washington, but you also came back to Boston, right? Right. To, to do some, you have some uh, uh, further education at Harvard medical school. That's right. That's right. So basically, um, after finishing my PhD, I went back to Saudi and I got a job in King Faisal Specialist Hospital. And um, again, I got a scholarship to join Harvard Medical School. It was uh, a global program. Uh, it was uh, focusing on clinical trials, epidemiology and um, uh, biostatistics basically. So that's where I started my HPV, which is the Human Papilloma Virus Project and Cervical Cancer. Uh, I joined Harvard Business School. I worked on my capstone project. Uh, and again, after completing this program, uh, I got actually the status to be alumna of uh, Harvard Medical School. My project, the capstone project actually was uh, uh, commended and I got even later than that, I got uh, a CACS, which is uh, a funding agency in Saudi. They funded my project with $2 million. So that, again, helped me to start my research line in Saudi uh, when you are talking about um, women's health and when you are talking about uh, human papillomavirus and cervical cancer. So that's where I moved to Boston. We uh, finished up this program. And this is the relation started basically between uh, both laboratories and uh, the work we have been doing on human papillomavirus and cervical cancer. Um, well, so let's bring you back to Saudi. And did you come back directly to a position with King Faisal Specialist Hospital? That's right. That's right. So I came actually uh, and I applied for a job uh, uh, it was not easy. Uh, it took me seven months to get the job. Uh, so this is um, this what happened during that time. Uh, but again, I, I joined immediately as volunteer uh, because, uh, yes. Uh, and as Lucian said, I mean, King Faisal, King, that's the leading hospital in the country. And, and it's it, uh, globally, it's a well-respected. I can speak to that, to be honest. I have personal experience with King Faisal. When I lived for a time in, in Saudi Arabia and... Um, my sister was in a very bad car accident in California. Oh. She ended up having a lot of her treatment at King Faisal. Oh. Um, and, and they did wonderful work, did wonderful work. This was way back. Uh, so they've been, they've been a remarkable institution for some time. Yeah, they, they are. And uh, King Faisal, again, uh, if you look at the name, the research center is attached to it. And I think it's the only hospital in Saudi or uh, somewhere. It has the research center attached to it because they believe in medical research. And yeah. there, that's where I belong. I love research and uh, King Faisal is the best. And um, if you look at um, King Faisal, it's um, is uh, a advanced and it has its own culture even when i came back from the states uh, my friends in the states they all uh, they they told me how did you adjust was it easy was it hard uh you know it's like in the states you have this uh, mixed culture and now you will go to segregated culture and i told them no this is not true in king faisal it's like you are somewhere in the u.s it's the same setup the same lab the same conference rooms uh, male and female working together uh 
different uh, nationalities. Uh, it's just the best professional uh, workplace you could be. So I'm so uh, glad I joined King Faisal uh, and still I'm with King Faisal. So you love research. You love I to do, do that. You love research. But you also have an interest in, in, uh, in, in NGOs and women's health issues. In the, and so then it's not specifically research, but, uh, you know, your founder and vice president of Rofeda Women's Health Organization. Where did all this begin and, and how is it, how, like, how do you spend your time between, yes, all, between actually, all, all these interests? It's all actually connected. If you look at research, what is the purpose of research? Is to improve, uh, at least for the medical research, is to improve people's lives and health. And um, again, I was doing my research on human papillomavirus and cervical cancer. As a researcher and observer, you always ask why, why we have this problem. And you want to understand where is the root uh, cause of that problem. So this is where we started to look into uh, the problems that we are facing and the research we are doing. Uh, if you look at um, human papillomavirus and cervical cancer, it's basically, uh, cervical cancer is the easiest cancer to treat. And uh, when I was in the States, I never thought about it as a problem because uh, there are vaccines and there is uh, a cervical screening test, which is the PAPSMIR. It's part of any regular clinic. It's, uh, it's well known, it's well established, nothing new, and you would think everyone is doing it. When I came back, it's not the case. It was the case for King Faisal. Uh, but it's not the case in other hospitals. And you end up seeing women coming with cervical cancer in late stages. And uh, this is heartbreaking to see someone dying of something that you can't prevent easily. And uh, again, you feel there is a gap in the community and there is a dire need really to educate women in the community. So, um, the whole idea of Rufaida started. You, you live in, uh, in a community where you always listen to the community and their needs. In the beginning, we were doing some awareness campaigns uh, here in King Faisal and some areas. Uh, but the impact is very limited uh, because you are going to do it in a lobby. It's just a regular uh, pamphlet and infographics and it's just the impact was really limited. Uh, we got together and we worked about the opportunity of starting an NGO, not an NGO for cervical cancer per se, because we don't want even to mention diseases. We want the health of women. We want to tackle women's health issues in general because um, Looking at women's health in Saudi and other parts of the world, uh, still there are so many things that can be done to uh, improve women's health. And we always believe that improving women's health, improving the family's health, improving the community, because if the female in the house educated, the whole family would be educated. And this is really our mission, is just to give the female the accurate, reliable information, evidence-based, and that's where it's connected to research. So whatever we are doing research, we communicate it to the community. Our mission really to give the women the accurate information, then it's her decision. I agreed. I mean, the, 
yeah, the the impact of of women in the household and the community, and the more educated they are, the better. I'm really fascinated because when we talked with Mohammed Al Haji, who, who you mentioned, you met through the Skilled Speaker Program. He um, he started the Saudi Genome Project, That's and this right. was and the motivation there was to help initially back in his home community in Al Asa with intermarriage, and to identify potential problems with this. Uh, I'm just really impressed, to be honest, with the motivation of people like yourself to come back and make a difference, to not just uh, get a degree and come back and get a job, but to actually uh, engage with and try to uh, improve the community. It's, 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 it's very admirable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, um, again, the scholarship programs, it's not about degrees. When you live abroad, uh, you see the world with different things. You see the whole ecosystem. You see how others are living and the importance of social responsibility. We belong to a community. And some people, they are privileged to have things others they don't have. And it's just not fair to just focus on yourself and get the degrees, get good salaries, get a good house and good life while others are struggling. You have to be an advocate. You have to be the voice for others. And for me, I have been advocate for women, always been the advocate for women. Whatever I get, uh, I wish everyone else would have it. It's just, uh, I'm so lucky to have a supportive family. Uh, remember during the old days, some, if you don't have a supportive family, that's it. That's the end for you. Uh, for me, I have a very supportive family. And throughout my journey, it's because I have a supportive family and I'm privileged to have all of this. Now it's my job to help others and to be the voice of others. And I think this is, it should be, this is our mission. And uh, we shouldn't be selfish, just uh, thinking about ourselves and our needs. We are part of the community. And this is how the community thrives, is by helping each other. And uh, really, if you look at the advocates, either for women's health or for women in general. You, you would see them, they, are, they have everything, okay? But still they are advocating for others. And I think this is the nobility here. This is when you think bigger than yourself and you want to help others. And again, everyone will benefit. Uh, wonderfully put. Um, and as I said, very admirable. So in 2018, you headed back to the United States because you were awarded the Eisenhower Fellowship. What is the Eisenhower Fellowship, and how do you how do you how how, how do you win that fellowship? It sounds it, it it looks like it's very impressive. Eisenhower Fellowship. It was uh, again a transformative experience for me. Uh, I lived in the states for uh, nine ten years and. Uh, with Eisenhower Fellowship, I looked at the state from different lens now. It's completely different journey. Uh, so the fellowship basically, it's, uh, we applied for it and we got the award. We were a cohort of students, uh, different uh, majors, different disciplines. We got to work together. It's a leadership program where you want to make an impact. Most of us, we have projects. For me, it was the Women's Health Project and bringing Women's Health Research to forefront in Saudi Arabia. I have my colleagues, they had uh, projects in oil, in hospitality, in business, in biotech uh, parks, in uh, philanthropy. So we were grouped. Now you don't focus only on your work, how to um, 
work with the group with different interests to make a huge impact or a bigger impact. We visited different states. Uh, for me, because I was focused on the health, I visited the top health uh, hospitals, uh, research institutes, NGOs in the US. I visited Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins, the NIH, uh, Boston, all uh, Mass, Mass General, everything. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I visited like 17 states. I visited NGOs because, you know, I'm always interested. Uh, so the science and healthcare system, it's easy to get the information, but sometimes uh, for the NGOs, for example, how they sustain the NGO, how they generate funds, how they fund, uh, do the fundraising, it's always interesting to me. And also how they communicate the information to the uh, to the community. So I visited HIV organizations and sexual transmitted infection uh, organizations, and I asked them, how, would, how do you do the education uh, uh, with these sensitive issues? So I got to know more about even the community and even the resistance in the community when it comes to these sensitive issues. Uh, so you, at the end, when you think about it, uh, we all have the same challenges and we all have uh, the same uh, important topics that we tackle. Different uh, priorities, different challenges, but really every community, every country, every society, they have their own problems and they are still working on it. We don't have a perfect society. With Eisenhower Fellowship, I saw the good and bad. I saw the healthcare system. I saw the challenges they are facing. I will take you back to uh, the women's health research per se. So what do we mean by women's health research? Women's health research is when you include women or include females, let me put it that way. You include females whenever you are doing research because men and women are different. You cannot do research on women, uh, on men, and come up with a conclusion that fits everyone, okay? And when you are talking about women's health, you are not talking about gynecological health. You are talking about everything. I I'm not sure if you have heard the story about that ignites the whole thing when it comes to women's health. There were a woman, uh, she came to the ER. Uh, she had, uh, she was nauseous and she was not feeling well. And they told her, no, you must be stressed out. Just go and relax. And she ended up having a heart attack. And it turned out to be the women's symptoms different than the men's symptoms coming with a heart attack. So she, she was discharged from the hospital. And since then, the movement started about women's health research. I visited the Office of Women's Health Research during my Eisenhower Fellowship uh, that was in Maryland. And remember the Women's Health Office, it was established 1990, like long time ago. Only in, 19, uh, in, in 2016, they regulated the Women's Health Research by uh, they are not gonna grant or fund any project if there is no inclusion if there is no male and female part of this research. And this is a huge movement, but for me, it was recent. It was not, I would expect it long time ago, but it happened in 2016. 
When I say male and female, that includes everything. That includes cell lines in the lab, that includes animals, that includes humans in clinical trials. So uh, when I came back from that, uh, from the Eisenhower Fellowship, three things were the, the main thing that I'm advocating for. For uh, scientists, researchers, clinicians, whatever you do, you have to include male and female in your research. That inclusion is very important. And also for the regulators, the grant funding agency, you have to require this in order for us to have a valuable research output and outcome. And also for women to be part of a research. Women, they don't participate in research and it's a struggle. And it's a struggle everywhere. I know it's a struggle in the US, it's more struggle in Saudi. And personally, I have struggled so many times uh, to get a cervical swab for a female. I, you know, when you ask them to consent, uh, you tell them, well, they are gonna take the swab from you. And instead of throwing it, I will take it to do more research on it. She would say, no, I would rather them throwing it, not giving it to you to research because they were afraid. They don't understand what research is. I always uh, put it in a simple way. It's whatever we are enjoying right now in the healthcare system, it's based on research. They, don't, they didn't come up with a protocol or a management without research. Research is the core of everything that we are getting. And maybe I'm focusing on uh, medical research, but really everything around you. If you think about women uh, in the industry, for example, uh, it's important when you test the uh, seat belt to test it on females as well because the body different. So you, the inclusion is very important and we have to understand this. Whatever you are doing in life, inclusion is very important. You don't pass the quality check without trying it on everyone. Uh, for so many years, they just use the male and they just report the results and that reflected on strategy, management, everything. So that's the call out we, uh, we uh, learned. And uh, again, uh, Eisenhower Fellowship, I can talk about it forever. It's an amazing experience. And um, uh, the staff, that, uh, the Eisenhower staff were amazing. And uh, really, I'm very thankful for that experience. It was really um, uh, a game changer. And uh, again, you, you start to look at things differently. Now you want to make an impact. You want to do things right. And instead of just um, uh, doing it the way you, you would think, it's, there is always a better way to do it. And uh, having a good network, uh, because we kept the network with our uh, colleagues in the States. And uh, this is how you, uh, how you improve and do things in the right way. It's, it is interesting that uh, in the U.S., the mandate didn't occur until 2016. So, as you say, you have struggled with awareness and understanding of these issues. Is it getting better? Uh, it is. It is um, much better. But again, as I said, um, you know, I'm a big believer in education and awareness and knowledge. Uh, knowledge is power. And uh, our job is to share that knowledge. Uh, either they reject it or take it, it's up to them. Sometimes from my own experience with the HPV, they, they reject in the beginning, but later on it will resonate. Later on they will go back because they will hear about cases happening right. in the community. And um, 
even sometimes there is a negative publicity. Uh, they will get mad. They will just, uh, they don't like such a topic, but later on they will realize. And you know, with the sensitive topics like these, uh, people privately asking about it, not publicly. So we do have a channel in Rufaida, a women's health organization, to get their questions and answer them. Uh, it's not, for me, it's not important to bring it publicly, uh, bluntly. I don't mind, but if the, if, if the message will not get across, I would do it other channels. The most important thing is just to put the accurate information out there, it will reach out. And also it's very important to articulate the message. Uh, our job uh, as a scientist is to spend time really how to communicate with the community. Don't expect them to be all at the same level. Don't expect them to understand the details of this. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy topic, but you know, the good thing is uh, we got the support from uh, from the healthcare, from uh, individuals, from clinicians, from scientists. So you have this community who is working together to educate others. It's a sensitive issue, yes, but I think now we are understanding. And I will tell you something. In 2016, um, we had the Women's Health Advocacy Forum. This is, uh, this is done through Rufaida in collaboration with King Faisal Specialist Hospital, where we bring a women's health uh, rights and asks that we bring it on the table with the policymakers and we need their help and support. In 2016, uh, Dr. Abdullah Atiri, who is the Deputy Minister, Minister of Health uh, uh, for Preventive Health, Mm -hmm. uh, the ask was, we need to mandate or we need to start uh, HPV vaccination in Saudi. That was 2016. He gave a lecture on that topic, how important it is, because we are in the era of preventive medicine. And uh, Saudi part of the international coalition to eradicate cervical cancer. We are uh, the luckiest country that we don't have so many cases, so it would be easy for us to eradicate why we don't join efforts and we start. That was 2016. We are going to have the same advocacy forum next month, May 25th. Dr. Abdullah Asiri is going to be the keynote speaker <laughs> to announce the launching of the national program of HPV vaccination for school girls. Can you wow. believe this? That's congratulations great. yeah that's awesome that's <laughs> that is that's congratulations mabrook that's really impressive that's impressive that's amazing that's what advocacy means it's just everyone getting together to advance this agenda and to help and save women we don't want to talk about these things anymore it's just a prevention if there is a vaccine that prevents cancer why don't you go and get it right so all right, so you, you're full time at King Faisal Specialist Hospital. You 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 had this Rafaida Women's Health Organization, which clearly, as you see, just has had some great success and is doing some wonderful work. Somewhere in there, you were chair of the Global Health Working Group for the C20. Now, I, we we're big fans of that whole process. When, uh, the first episode we did on the 966 with was Abdullah Hassan, who was a Sue Sherpa for the G20 and head of uh, a policy uh, executive 
director for policy of, of the, the, the Saudi uh, general secretariat. And it's just, it just was an extraordinary experience, I think, for him, an extraordinary experience for a lot of, of Saudis. So uh, you were, uh, what, what were your responsibilities as chair of the Global Health Working Group for the C20? Uh, again, that was a really a great experience. Uh, during that one, actually, I was wearing two hats, you know, as a virologist, because it happens really during the pandemic. Right. Uh, and I was working full time during that time. You know, it was a lockdown. It was um, so I was really uh, uh, working full time during that time. And also I was wearing the hat of the civil society organization. So the working group basically is to bring to the G20 leaders the important topics that uh, voiced by the civil society worldwide. So we had over 600 uh, civil society organizations join the C20, uh, which is the civil 20. And basically we bring up the issues that need to be discussed by the G20 leaders. Three important issues during the pandemic uh, was the focus of, uh, of, the G of the C20 group. It's basically the equity. And it's still until today, the equity and equity, everything that's taking place right now, uh, we are not happy with. Uh, in the beginning, it was during uh, the pandemic with the preparedness, with the testing facility. With, not every country has this capability and has the facility. So we were asking for the equity. Also with vaccination, uh, until today, Richard, we are still seeing the problem with the variants because the vaccinations were taken by the rich countries, while other countries, they, are, they don't have the privilege of having these vaccinations. And remember, as a virologist, uh, infectious disease does not respect borders. You cannot make your country safe if Ghana is not safe or if uh, other countries not safe. Infectious disease will reach you. So we have to think on a global level. And that was actually our ask in the civil society uh, uh, C20. It's basically the equity, it's basically the universal health care system. Healthcare uh, insurance, it's a human right. Everyone should have an access to the healthcare. So that was our ask. And the third one is the investment in uh, research and development. When, when the pandemic started, when COVID hit, the whole world was looking for scientists. What are they doing? Where is the vaccine? Where is the detection assay? Everyone was looking for scientists. And really, you need to invest in infrastructure of science and technology because this is what saved us. Uh, the vaccine that we're lucky to have uh, it, it didn't happen in a month or two. It was a research was done since SARS 2003, isn't it? Like the messenger RNA vaccine. It's during the China SARS infection. During that time, they were working on it long time ago. Then so, uh, they had the platform ready. They have the technology. So when Corona hit, they got the fund and immediately they got they gave us the vaccine. It's a real investment. It's a huge investment. It's a long-term investment. And this is the call, is just to focus on uh, research and, uh, and technology. I want to take you back within Saudi itself. Um, when you are talking about the civil society organizations, during the G20 presidency, the civil society organizations were very empowered during that time. 
So for the C20 was led by Keith Khalid Foundation, which is uh, leading philanthropy in the country. Uh, the Women 20 was led by Anahda, which is another uh, old uh, NGO in Saudi. And the labor, the L20, was led by another NGO. So three NGOs, they were running three different uh, groups. And uh, that was impressive uh, to see it happening in Saudi because now the trend is empowering the uh, MPOs in Saudi. Uh, for a long time, they were not empowered. Now, if you see the changes happening in the community in Saudi with the Saudi vision, government, private, MPOs, they are all working together. It used to be the government doing everything. Now, no, you have to activate the MPOs. The MPOs now, it's not a charity as used to be. We are not giving away money. We are developing programs. We are empowering women. We are giving them the tools. Uh, it, this, is, this is new in Saudi. And uh, luckily, in, in Rufaida Women's Health Organization, um, our chair is Princess uh, Modi bin Khalid, who is a prominent uh, philanthropist. Uh, she has over 40 years of experience. She has been through so many uh, roles in the NGOs. She established so many. And also, we were incubated by King Khalid Foundation. King Khalid Foundation, they have also uh, a long history when it comes to NGOs. So we established Rufaida. It's a, a, a new startup, but really with a good expertise, with a good experience from uh, uh, the founders and with the help with King Khalid Foundation, we run the NGO as a business where you generate revenue and at the end, the profit will come back to the operation to expand. Now you have a sustainable plan where you have an endowment, you have an investment arm. So the whole business, it's, it's really as a business model. It's not a charity. It's not uh, just collecting money and giving it back. No, even the programs we designed, we give the women the ability and the empowerment to survive in her own. There is no money involved here. We develop everything, and that's the whole idea. Uh, remember the Chinese proverb, like, give a man a fish, you will feed him for a day. But if you teach him how to fish, they will survive long enough. So that's basically what we are doing. This is the, the change in the MPO system in Saudi. It's basically empowerment. We are not just giving away um, money or food. And uh, this is a great transformation happening in Saudi. And uh, I'm glad this is happening. Is the proper term social entrepreneurship? Uh, there is, yeah. Uh, so this is exactly what we are talking about. But yeah. some there are, yeah. So uh, again, you have to have an impact. And right. again, social entrepreneurship is the perfect example. We are not taking it to that level yet. Uh, but I think at the end, it will all turn to be uh, that way. Because again, the government is uh, not going to support everyone. Basically, you have to stand alone, independent. And it's always good. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you are aware of this. For NPOs, they should be separate from the government. I mean, they can be regulated for uh, governance and other things. But um, overall, uh, you have to be the voice of 
people, you have to develop your own program independently. And for us, we are advocates for women's health rights. So this is what's happening now. And to be reliable, you have to be strong and standing alone, uh, even your um, income, because at the end of the year, you will show your income. If you take more money from the government, then you are a government. Okay, mm -hmm. you are not an MPO. Uh, so that's, that's what we are trying to do is minimize the fund we get from the government and we have other resources because you are the voice of people, you are the voice of the community, and that's where you need to generate your income. That's interesting on the G20 because I guess there's eight subgroups and, and as you're saying, three of them were run by NGOs and it, the explosion of NGOs and their the, the mainstreaming of NGOs and the habit of NGOs has just been fascinating to watch over the last five, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, it's really exploded. So um, how optimistic are you about women's empowerment in Saudi Arabia? Very, very, very optimistic. Um, well, when you are talking about women empowerment, it's already happening. If you look at the statistics, if you look at what's happening in Saudi, if you look at our goal for 2030, we already we already reached it, and actually we passed whatever we uh, we yeah. are planning. Uh, it's now 42%, I think, women in uh, the workforce, which is uh, exceeding our uh, uh, goal. Uh, if you look at the last report, the World Bank report that was published. 2021, and you can see the ranking of Saudi. Uh, if you compare 19 to 20 to 21, we jumped. Now we are, uh, I think, we got 80 out of 100 uh, in just a uh, short amount of time. Uh, we actually uh, topped the score for five indicators. We got 100% for uh, employment, entrepreneurship, uh, salary-wise or pay scale, a pension, and um, so we got like 100%. Uh, and this is a huge movement happening in Saudi. Uh, if you remember in, um, in 2000, actually last year, 2021, the Crown Prince announced the legal reform. And you really cannot do women empowerment if you don't have uh, a legal reform system and uh, legislative uh, uh, the Crown Prince announced four uh, huge reforms that will take place. And if you remember, the first one was the personal status law and um, uh, the evidence law and uh, civil transaction. And the, the last one was penalty code uh, law. Those four is very important. Two of them passed. And the important one is the personal status law. The personal status law is basically focusing on um, uh, family affairs. And uh, this is very important when you want to empower women. Women empowerment is not at workplace. Women empowerment starts from her house, from her family. If she's not empowered in her house, that's not women empowerment. So this is the reform happened and passed last week. It includes everything you would imagine when it comes to a family affair. It includes um, the marriage, it includes the divorce, the custody, the housing. Most importantly, the minimum age of marriage. It's 18 now, it's set. So uh, this is a huge reform when it comes to women's empowerment. And uh, 
again, things are moving, things are changing positively. We are seeing women, uh, I'm sure you are aware of all things happening in Saudi. Uh, women are uh, advancing uh, in leadership positions. The vibes in the community, the youth, and um, really every, every time you meet someone, uh, you mentioned Muhammad Al-Hajji, he has another project. It's like even one project is not enough for everyone. You would find people having more than one project because the potential is really high. And there are so many opportunities that you can give back and you can empower the community. Uh, talking, sorry, I need to minimize this. So um, I just wanna mention something. Uh, uh, being a catalyst or being um, someone orchestrating so many things, believe me, if you have a good team, if you have a good community, it's not a lot of work because everyone believes in your cause. And uh, for me, sometimes they would tell me like, how can you manage all of this? Well, I'm, I'm not managing everything. So uh, we have teams. When you are talking about Rufaida per se, Rufaida has 25 founders, amazing individuals. We have the board. Uh, everyone has a responsibility and everyone owns it. If you meet anyone, you would think this is the only project he has in life, how passionate they are and how they believe in this mission. And this is really the empowerment we want to see in the community. Everyone wants to give his time, his knowledge, his money, just to empower everything and uplift the society. And this is the momentum that's happening in Saudi is amazing. Uh, and I hope it will continue this way. Well, you mentioned a catalyst, and clearly you are a catalyst. And yes, you're right. I mean, it's not Rafaida sounds extraordinarily impressive, and you say 25 founders, but you're the founder, and you know, and 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 clearly, uh, people wanted to gather and support you, and 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 do this work that you think is so important. And it's it's just really impressive. And on the personal status uh, law, agreed. We we've done a segment on it. It's a landmark thing for Saudi Arabia. And yeah. for so many years, we talk with, you know, friends of ours who are Saudi women and they say, you know, driving is nice. But as you say, we need to we need to make adjustments in the household. And and that's what this personal status law does. You mentioned, well, so women's empowerment is women's health. It's legal reform. It's economic opportunity. Um, it's also communication, which you've talked about here. And I'm just a little curious about you know, communicating in the modern age now in 2022 is difficult. It's social media, it's digital, um, everybody's connected to each other. Um, are there unique challenges uh, for you in Saudi Arabia to connecting to the masses? Saudi Arabia is a very connected uh, society. Um, how do you get your message out there as widely as possible? Because you've mentioned sort of um, interpersonal conversations with women. Um, and we saw in Saudi Arabia uh, with the um, coronavirus sort of a mass uh, awareness and uh, information campaign to get the vaccine. Um, are you guys going to adopt similar strategies? Um, if you could talk a little bit about that, I think that would be interesting. Yeah, sure. So um, about the communication, the communication is very important. And for Rufaida, when we are designing programs, actually, if you look at our programs, uh, we have one of our programs is called Unfiltered Talk, where uh, it's a, a monthly session where we open up a topic about gynecological or sexual health. We bring the experts and we do it through Zoom. We do it through Instagram. So anonymously, you can write your question. You can get the information you want because at the end, we just want to pass the accurate information. I don't know who, I don't need to know who you are. 
So we are making this a possibility also. We are doing some on-ground uh, training. We are doing some uh, private uh, training. But at the same time, we are utilizing all social uh, media platforms. Um, so this is, uh, this is very important. And also, um, we, we are trying to articulate the message right. And there is a huge need for accurate information in Arabic. And that was one of the reasons why we created Rufaida. Mm -hmm. Reading read English and knowing English is a privilege. You can look up any resources and get the information you want. However, it's, uh, it's uh, less information presented in Arabic. There is no much medical information, reliable medical information in Arabic. So that's why our job, even to translate or to provide the accurate information, make it available for female, instead of just reading a WhatsApp message or uh, uh, nonsense messages that it's just not reliable. So our job actually is to bring the messages in Arabic for our own population and our community. This being the case, actually, uh, when it comes uh, to women's health. Uh, again, women's health, COVID vaccine, HPV vaccine happening up now. We are, um, we are facing the anti-vaxxers group as well as you guys. I know in the US, you are struggling with those. We have them in Saudi. And uh, again, I always believe if you give the accurate information, people, they need to make their minds and they need to choose the right things. Uh, you cannot force everyone, but you have to be active and you have to give them the information. Don't be passive and say, I don't care. No, as much as they put wrong information, put the accurate information. Don't confront everyone. Just make the information available and be available to defend and be available to present. Uh, if a message coming out of King Faisal Hospital, it's a reliable. If a message coming from MOH, it's a reliable. The government will not kill you. The government will not provide anything harmful to you. Our job is to help the community. Our job is the public health. Uh, so uh, being available, being presentable, being um, passionate and compassionate about this. People are different. People sometimes, they don't know. Uh, they are afraid. Uh, just being available, I think, with the accurate information is very important. That's yeah, a really no, go yeah, ahead. Go no, ahead. No, no, please, uh, please. No, that's a really good distinction about Arabic uh, making it available in Arabic. And I have to say, I don't know what your response was, but somehow it was encouraging to me that you're dealing with anti-vaxxers too. I don't, <laughs> I don't know why. I said, "Oh, really? It's not just us." That's good. It, it would be great if only the U.S. had the problem, but, you know, at least we're not alone. Exactly. Unfortunately, unfortunately, but again, science prevail. And um, another thing I want to mention to you regarding um, the, the importance of working together in a society, I think uh, civil society organizations, um, they are more acceptable when it comes to uh, these movements, these vaccines. People, they listen to the civil society organization rather than the government, for example, because, you know, you know everything was politicized at some point. Uh, the, the mistrust sometimes is there. It's like you are just, uh, it's a commercial, it's a, a pharmaceutical company, they want to sell something. And uh, when a civil society organization takes the uh, awareness campaigns, and I think it's, it's worth it, and it's uh, reliable, and people, they love to listen from uh, civil society organizations, because again, 
uh, it's just you are the voice of community, you are the, giving them the truth, and you are trying to protect your society. So. The enormously impressive Dr. Fatima Alhamlan joins us from Riyadh. <laughs> this was a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Um, brava. Thank you. Fatima, it was really an honor, and I thank you for joining us. I hope maybe we'll have you back on sometime, because uh, if, if we can fit into your busy day. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. And before I end, I just... Um, I uh, want to share it with everyone who's listening uh, to, um, to everyone who's listening, wherever they are in their journey, is just um, live with a purpose and have an impact. Whatever you do, every one of us uh, can do something to the community. And if we just keep this in mind, every day we wake up, we go to work. If you just incorporate this in our daily lives and uh, again, just to live with a purpose and have an impact, I think the world will be better off. Inspirational as well as impressive. Thank you, Fatima. Thank you. Thank you. That was our awesome conversation, we think, with Fatima Alhamlan, just a really wonderful woman. We thank her for her time. We hope you guys enjoyed that very much. Impressive in every way. Richard, what do you think about getting to Yella? Yella. Saudi in a minute. Yeah, we, we we are hilarious. <laughs> we're just really tired. <laughs> no, I'm exhausted. We 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 think we're hilarious. <laughs> if we laugh at ourselves, you know, maybe somebody else laughs with us. Who knows? <laughs> All right, number one, Saudi Arabia is targeting a tenfold increase in international airline passengers transiting the kingdom by the end of the decade, as it looks to triple annual passenger traffic. An official told Reuters. This is a cool story. The aviation um, space in Saudi Arabia is blowing up. They really, and part of this was the Vision 2030 kind of goal of positioning Saudi Arabia as East meets West, the, a natural pivot point. Obviously, Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Doha are big hubs for Westerners traveling East and vice versa. Saudi Arabia is looking to compete with them and sort of you know increase its presence on the global stage as a place to fly to, place to uh, fly through. Um, as you know, Richard, they're putting a lot of work into potentially a new airline that might be launched, as well as a refurbishment of Riyadh's airport. Uh, a lot of, lot going on here. You know, we need to have an economist on to talk about what is the nature of the Saudi economy? Because these first two yellows, and we'll get to the second one, speak to what they're doing. So let's say the government wants to direct international flights to rise from 200 to 250 from 99 currently. Uh, also want to increase air cargo volumes to 4.5 million by 2030 from 900,000 tons in 2019. Uh, targeting passenger traffic of 300 million, 330 million a year. <clears throat> so and by the way, just as an overview, the total air traffic in, in the Middle East rose 215% in February 22 compared to the February year-on-year -year February 2021. So it, it's growing. And, and on a global scale, it was 115%. So the mean of traffic was actually larger, you know, uh, in, in terms of growth. But this uh, airport hub strategy calls for $133 billion in investment. Here's my point. It's not a it's not a pure market economy. This is a mixed economy. Saudi Arabia and and the government is leaning in big time and basically making markets. You know that 133 billion, a lot of that's going to come from from 
to government coffers. You know, they're going to try and get foreign direct investment. But they're trying to make a market and they're doing it in, you know, in tourism, transportation, entertainment, elsewhere, mega projects. Um, and it's just fascinating because it seems like they're gaining traction in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I guess, you know, you, you make a market, it's a lost leader, it's got to be. And eventually you hope you develop a market, but that's different from sitting around and watch that, you know, and waiting for a market to evolve organically, you know, based on supply and demand and prices and that sort of thing, which Saudi Arabia doesn't have the time to do. Mm-hmm. So it's going out and essentially catalyzing markets with these investments. And, you know, this is why PAF is, PIF is involved in everything. Um, presumably this all gets into the private sector hands eventually, but, uh, but I just think it's fascinating that they, they, they're setting these targets and they're making real headway toward these targets. Uh, and we know these targets are, are enormous in terms of this ambition. Uh, but, the, you know, the, certainly in the tourism sector, they're seeing real progress. And our entertainment sector is just blowing up uh, transportation and elsewhere. But anyway, it, it, like I said, I'd love to get somebody who really knows what they're talking about as an economist to come and say, all right, this is what Saudi Arabia is doing. And it's similar to this country or that country or this country. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's funny that the article says, uh, quotes Mohammed Al-Qurasi, the head of um, strategy at the GACA, General Authority of Civil Aviation, he says, quote, we are not after the transit market. So maybe just forget about what I said about them hoping to capture that. But um, that, that's just a, like a really great point, Richard, about the economics behind this, that they don't have time to wait around and hope that this thing kind of generates naturally. They're looking to jumpstart it like they do with many other things. So um, yeah. $133 billion is a lot of money, even for Saudi Arabia. So yeah. um, there's a serious commitment there. Um, yeah, interesting. All right. Uh, yellow number two. Saudi Arabia, a major investor in Lucid, has agreed to buy up to 100,000 Lucid EVs over the next 10 years. The deal is worth um, the deal is for at least 50,000 vehicles over that time. With Saudi Arabia's Ministry of Finance having an option to purchase up to 50,000 more. Here's an example. This is what I mean. The first two. So not only you know do they basically give it the Lucid new life in 2018, 2019 with a billion dollar investment. They now hold plus 60 plus percent of the shares in Lucid. Not only are they, they, you know, that investment, now they're going to make a market by buying, you know, uh, 1,000 to 2,000 vehicles annually and increase to between 4,000 and 7,000 vehicles annually in 2025. This is not, you know, incidental because, you know, 2022 production, Lucid is going to make 12 to 14,000 vehicles. So Saudi Arabia again is making a market, and and what happens when you bring in these 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 luxury sedans and electric vehicles? And by the way, they're going to try they're going to buy future models too, like the their SUV, the Gravity, which I haven't seen any mockups of. I bet it's I don't know what it looks like. It's because they're designing it for us to ship to us as part of our <laughs> partnership agreement. Blue said. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, that's going to force, you got to have charge. If you're going to, if you're going to have these EVs in the country, you got to have charging stations. Mm-hmm. If I were some, if I were some bright person in Saudi Arabia, I'd be immediately applying to, to build a bunch of charging stations. The PIF um, owns 61% of Lucid, which is interesting. Um, 
And, you know, basically delivery of the vehicles is expected to start no later than 2023. So it's coming up order numbers initially ranging from 1000 to 2000 annually and increasing between four and 7000 starting in 2025. Um, So so they're going to start ramping this up. Uh, Very interesting. The Lucid Air just won the car of the Motor Trends car of the year. I mean, this car has tremendous promise. So this is and Lucid stock jumped a little bit on this news, but um, it's funny. We talk about updating your perceptions. Saudi Arabia is about to be a major manufacturer of electric vehicles and now, you know, is purchasing 100,000 or up to 100,000. That's a huge, significant change. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so like I said, but they're making a market. This is not an economical thing. Right. Um, and maybe they'll turn around and sell them to private buyers in, in Saudi. Maybe they'll integrate them into fleets. I don't know. You know, you know government fleets. Um, hard to know, but it, it, it hardly matters. You're basically taking, uh, you know, someone you're deeply invested in and, and deeply invested in lucid success and, and helping them make a market over, over you know, in, in the kingdom. Have you seen a lucid in the air, in the wild yet? I have not seen one just driving around. There's, they're in the hundreds. They're not, I have not seen one. And, but there's only, I think something like 150 have been delivered. Not a lot have been delivered. None to my neighborhood. That's for dang sure. <laughs> we are still waiting on ours. I guess we're not in the top 150. That's okay. We don't need to be. Um, yeah. We're just. We'll just take it whenever you guys are ready at, at Lucid to send us our free Lucid. So yeah, absolutely. I, I won't complain. Whenever it arrives, I'll be happy. <laughs> Thank you in advance to the Lucid team. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Number three. Saudi princes have sold more than 600 million worth of real estate, yachts, and artwork in the U.S. and Europe since the kingdom's de facto ruler tightened the purse strings of the ultra-wealthy ruling family. The transactions represent a radical change of fortune for senior princes who funneled windfalls from oil booms in the 1970s and 80s into some of the world's most exclusive markets. Uh, the vast sums of money were spent largely on hard-to-sell assets or drained by spending that reached $30 million a month for some royals with large staffs and lavish lifestyles, making them vulnerable to recent changes in government, pol- government policy. That's a mouthful. That's why I gave it to you for the, the, for the, <laughs> the, the, the third one. Um, you know, this is interesting, Richard. Um, Robert Lacey's book, Inside the Kingdom, um, David Rundell's book as well, all sort of talk about and, and make sure that they emphasize the late King Abdullah's initial work in curbing the largesse and the money that would flow, you know, out of the crown and into the hundreds and thousands of royals, hundreds or thousands of royals that would receive stipends every month. There used to be a lineup, physical lineup of royals showing up to the majlis and receiving a manila envelope full of money. And King Abdullah started to curb that. He started to cut back on, uh, you know, uh, out of control cell phone bills from abroad, little things like that. And I think that the, you know, the biggest thing in the history of corruption crackdown in Saudi Arabia was 2017 with the Ritz, uh, widely publicized. This is just a very, very interesting story. Um, And also indicates that things, there's a different way of doing business in Saudi Arabia now, that corruption is no longer the norm or accepted in any way. Not that this is necessarily corrupt, just that there's a sea change going on. I think there are two parts to this piece, and I think it's important to separate them, but it, it, it circles back to why I think people should probably 
take a broader perspective on Mohammed bin Salman. So, so Prince Mohammed has curtailed perks for thousands of royals, including paid vacations abroad or electricity and water bills at their Saudi palaces. Such, such perks had amounted to hundreds of billions of dollars in annual costs for the Saudi government. So let's say, uh, yes, King Abdullah did start to try and do this. I think King Abdullah, King Abdullah attempted to begin a, a number of things. One was trying to get the uh, royal house in order and get a handle on these, these, these expenditures. Two, he tried to liberalize as much as he could. Um, and we've, our, our, two most recent, our, our two most recent guests were beneficiaries of the um, uh, scholarship program that came to the U.S. to study. And that was a very clever and you might call subversive way to, to broaden people's minds and liberalize the country. Um, but you take a look at MBS and what do we know? So King Salman basically has said, taken this and supercharged everything. And so let's talk about two things. One, let's talk about corruption. And we've done segments on King Salman. And we know, you know, he was Emir, Emir, Emir of the Riyadh government for 48 years. He was also Minister of Defense for four years, which was sort of the, you know, locus of a lot of the major corruption. Uh, King Salman was known for his, you know, absence of corruption. He was a straight up guy. He doesn't like it. Um, one of his major mandates to MBS when he made him crown prince was to rid the government of corruption. And, and so that's, that's one. Corruption is one. But also on the perk side to get the, the House of Saud in order and to cut down on these perks and, and, and the sort of largesse that a lot of the royal family have enjoyed. Um, so when you look at MBS, you know, everyone sees all their flaws, but this is something there's, you know, what, what American in a liberal democracy is going to say, well, you know, he's cut down on corruption and he's cut down on indiscriminate government spending to, you know, that can't be really tracked within the household, the house of Saud, you know, these are, these are good things from our perspective. It's a positive thing. But um, it's also especially important because uh, for Saudi Arabia and for the regime in general and for the country as a whole, we know coming out of 2011, the Arab Spring, well, we think, my opinion is the, the lesson was not the type of government, but governance. You know, it doesn't matter what regime is, it's just how well you governed it. Um, and for Saudi Arabia to introduce the Vision 2030 and everything that comes with it, um, things like, you know, reduce power, gas, and telecom subsidies, introduction of first a 5% VAT and then a 15% VAT. You cannot do this. The business community will not sign on. And there's a close communication between business community and the ruling regime. And you know what the business community is saying. They're going, okay, we'll take this and we'll take the hit, but you have to clean up your own house. I don't want, you know, I don't want royals coming to just strong on me for a piece of my business. I don't want to be paying for, for royals who don't pay their, their phone power or vacation bills. I don't want to be bilked out about things. So, you know, if, if you do your part, we'll do our part. And so this is critical. This is unseen, really. 
but it's critical to the success of Vision 2030. And it's like so many things that happen with Saudi Arabia that, you, you know, big things have to happen first, like, like, like you know, finding adequate housing. First, they had to fix the white land situation, which is a political difficulty. It was a hot wire, third rail. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in order to, to track Saudiization and, and how people, you know, in the workforce, you had to digitize everything. So these are background. This is, this is background stuff that is really critical. So I guess what I'm saying is, is, is uh, first of all, I think it's important to distinguish between perks and corruption. But in both cases, they've been significantly reduced under King Salman and MBS. Just really, really, really well said, Richard. I mean, like if you just to echo what you said, I mean, if you want to attract investment, those who are investing are going to take a look at what they are investing in and mm-hmm. they want to have the confidence that they won't get shaken down or the money won't get lost or X, Y, and Z. I mean, I'm actually not going to add anything to that. That was brilliantly said. Um, it happens. That's, that's why it, ha- <laughs> that's why the show, the show rules. Um, uh, very, very well done. Um, yellow number four, uh, sorry, yellow number four, the recently announced Prince Mohammed bin Salman nonprofit city has appointed David Henry as its CEO. Uh, an industry veteran with over four decades of experience in property development, David has been leading the, leading the team responsible for developing the city from the beginning of the project towards the goal of establishing it as a premier ecosystem for youth and a global center for incubating innovative, educational, and creative enterprises. Richard, we've talked a little bit about this new nonprofit city that's being built. Um, very interesting that they um, are moving forward with this, have a CEO. Um, Ghassan Al-Shibal is the chairman of the board of the nonprofit city, city, and he used to be chairman of the board of Saudia. Um, he's really everywhere in Saudi Arabia. So very he's, he's, he's a capable guy. Indeed. Yep. Um, fascinating stuff. I, you know, we just spoke with uh, Fatima Al-Hamlan, who has started an, her own NGO, uh, Rafaida, which deals with women issues, female issues and, and health issues, women's health issues. And, um, she talks about her journal. She talks about the support she got and has had and continues to have to do this. Uh, in an upcoming episode, we'll speak with Muhammad Al-Haji, who, who, um, who uh, it works for the Ministry of, of Health and does some fascinating stuff. And he talks about he's got his Saudi genome. He's got his own business, again, trying to help people in terms of uh, identifying possible genetic issues. Um, but he also talks about uh, being part of uh, a MISC Foundation program called Ignited Voices that he said was just enormously effective. Fatima Al-Hamlan, also part of a ministry of media called Skilled Speakers Program, she's found really useful. I, I, you know, going back to this, this uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman nonprofit city and David Henry as a CEO, he, this is what he said. He said, focusing on promoting Saudization with particular emphasis on women empowerment and upscaling of staff David aims to increase the percentage of Saudi talent working on the team from the current 58% to reach 70% by the end of 22. So women empowered upskilling staff. But if you have a minute, listen to Fatima Al-Hamlan and listen to Mohammed Al-Haji. And what you the strong sense is just an exploding NGO nonprofit sector. Uh, a whole new attitude about how to engage with your community and a whole new sense of responsibility on the part of young Saudis in particular that they should engage with their community and try and improve it. 
it's it's a it's an energy that didn't exist 10 years ago and is just exploding now nothing to add to that again <laughs> that's uh <laughs> that's just absolutely correct um Number. Those interviews, those interviews are available on our YouTube channel. Um, Muhammad Al Haji will be available around um, Monday. Just yeah. really great stories, and and you know, like you just discussed. I mean, former students in the uh, Saudi students in the United States on, on the scholarship, you know, spent a decade in the United States and bringing back values and bringing here values. That cultural diffusion is awesome to see, and yeah. it's on full display in these interviews. So check them out. Agree. Five, Saudi Arabia's new investment law is expected to increase international business by 50% as it treats both local and foreign investment equally, removing any commercial advantage previously extended to Saudi companies, said sovereign Saudi, said sovereign Saudi Arabia. By legally, quote, by legally enforcing the principle of competitive neutrality to public and private investors, this removes any previous commercial barriers to entry, unquote, said Paul Arnold, managing director of sovereign Saudi Arabia. This goes back to our yellow number three, I believe it was. We were just talking about the local investment environment. Right. Um, under the new law, both local and foreign investors will be subject to the same sectoral improvement requirements for licenses and registration, as well as for approvals or permits for certain economic activities or special economic zones. This is just a step toward better competition in Saudi Arabia for businesses. You know, we need to have Chris Johnson back on to talk about all the changes because a lot of things have changed. The personal data uh, law, the personal status law, personal data law has been postponed, it's been pushed off, but it's something that's coming up. Because, um, uh, you know, to get a real sense of how foreign businesses are looking at this and how they're being, how it's being received, the devil's always in the details. Uh, but this certainly appears to be a really promising step because it's that uncertainty that you referenced earlier. Um, that is, you know, is what freezes uh, potential investment and, you know, makes people think twice. And if they know, you know, they can understand, fully understand the regulatory framework and the legal framework and, and that sort of thing. And there's nothing opaque. There's nothing, no surprises around any corner. It's equitable. That's got to, uh, you know, improve investment opportunities. Now, Sovereign noted that the new investment law could boost the country's gross domestic product uh, by more than 936 million in funds. Uh, so that, you know, they're thinking it will be an inducement to foreign investment. Like I said, maybe Chris can give us a straight skinny on this. Chris, come back. <laughs> <laughs> Chris wants to come back. We, we have to just get, we have to schedule him. <laughs> Which is getting more and more difficult. As we discussed last week, we didn't have a special guest because we had two guests per week for the next few weeks and it's just becoming crazy but um and that's all my colleague here um in his deep rolodex so yeah. benefiting all the listeners and viewers of the 966 the 966 is hard to be popular <laughs> heavy lies of the crown <laughs> yellow, <laughs> yellow number six saudi arabia has initiated a program for cloud seeding a weather modification technique in three regions as part of a plan to a part of a plan seeking to increase annual rainfall in the kingdom by 10 to 20%. According to local media on Twitter, they have a video um, showing the cloud seeding in action. Cool, cool stuff. New technology, possibly more rain in Saudi Arabia. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I guess uh, uh, Saudi only gets like 100 millimeters a year. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, 
And um, I guess this cloud seeding operation is part of their Middle East Green Initiative Summit, uh, which took place last October. And it's part of all the, you know, they're, they're planning how many trees? I think it's 10 billion. Yes, yeah, 10 billion. It's a number we've tripped over before. <laughs> yeah, it's just so <laughs> unbelievable. It is enormous. <laughs> um, the mega so, planting. <laughs> excuse me. So, so this would be interesting. You know, I guess they're going to start in Riyadh, Kasim, and Heil, and then second phase, Nasir al Bahan type. Be wild if it worked. I mean, if you could change your sort of ecosystem with more rain. Um, by the way, that was something Muhammad Ahaji mentioned. He mentioned how things are greening up in Riyadh, you know, even just, just in the in the short term since they started trying to do this stuff. That's right. We asked him about what he missed a lot from the U.S. or missed most from the U.S. And he said the parks, living next to a park, going on a walk in a park with a bunch of trees. Yeah. And then he went on to say, and I don't want to spoil it, but then he went on to say, well, they are planting a lot of trees in Saudi Arabia now. So who knows? Maybe all maybe the parks will follow me. Uh, <laughs> exactly. This this cloud seeding thing is interesting. I remember hearing about it when it was first sort of uh, proposed just generally as and I, and I didn't really understand it because it seems like, well, if you're just going to fly a plane up and drop water into the cloud so it can rain, does that really work? But I, I mean, it's not like that. It's generating, I guess, what pressure in the clouds to create precipitation. I still don't really understand how it works, I, but I have to watch the video because I'm not sure how it works. I thought you put some sort of chemical in the clouds to okay. induce, to catalyze some sort of reaction, but I'm not, I'm, I don't know. Well, we cordially invite Saudi environment minister, Abdul Rahman Al-Fadali, um, who is, uh, overseeing this program to join us on the 966 at some point to school us on cloud seeding. Um, this just seems like a, a, a crazy thing. And if it works and Saudi Arabia can generate some regions with some rainfall, that's huge. Absolutely. And, and, uh, again, you know, part of their middle, you know, and this is, this is a thing we don't know so much, you know, the decarbonization efforts, uh, you know, their green efforts, the efforts to lower emissions, you know, there may be technologies that really spike this thing and, and bounce it to greater levels. You just don't know. And it'd be amazing if this cloud seeding worked in the, and you started to see some, you know, more greening of Saudi Arabia, which of course would reduce emissions and help capture carbon. But um, yeah, there's, you know, in, in terms of the world climate uh, and getting where we want to get to by 2030, um, it, it looks bleak at the moment, especially after Ukraine and everything uh, has set things back. But um there may be some surprises that help us get there. Mm -hmm. This reminds me a little bit of the proposal to drop a nuclear bomb into a hurricane to make it go away. Um, it just, it's hard to understand as possible, but um, you know, they've got the science behind this. So let's hope it works. Um, well, see, see, I think the reasoning behind that is, is flawed. You don't do it to see if it make you go away, just to see how cool it would be. <laughs> We don't have any new footage of a nuclear bomb going off. So <laughs> we get to two bird, one stone thing. Exactly. In a hurricane from maximum, <laughs> maximum distribution of the fallout. <laughs> we always like to wrap up this program on a lighter note. I think we accomplished that yet again this week. Um, follow us on uh, YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Write us a rating or review. Thank you for tuning in to everybody. It's cool to see the audience grow. We also love all the feedback and the comments we're getting, especially on YouTube. We just ask that everybody be civil to each other. 
Um, but we love hearing everybody's opinion, and that's what this is about. It's a forum so we can all discuss what's going on. Truly, we really appreciate the kind words and encouragement that we're getting. Thank Indeed. you. Indeed. Richard, thank you so much. See you next week. Thank you. Well done, Lucian. Thank you uh, to you as well.